as we jump into Psalm 13 here, I want to remind you of a couple of things we talked about last week in Psalm 145. The first is that God is unchanging in his nature. He's always gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, good to all, merciful. His greatness is unsearchable. And those are just the words that Psalm 145 uses. Those qualities of who the Lord is never change. And because of that, we saw last week that he's always worthy of praise, regardless of our current circumstances. The right time to praise the Lord is all the time. And we've got to commit ourselves to doing that. Martin Luther says, if any human ever glorifies God in thought, word, or deed, it must be consequent upon a deliberate decision to do so. This psalm that we're going to look at here this morning is remarkable for its movement. What Psalm 13 offers us is a picture of deep, deep despair intersecting with really deep faith. And as a follower of Christ, as a, as a believer in the Lord, where do those two things come together? And what does that say for us in the midst of our own grief? What does that say to us in the midst of interacting with someone else who's experiencing huge levels of hurt and pain and grief? And so the big picture takeaway this morning is going to be this. It's going to be that when in times when God feels distant, deep despair can fuel deep faith. And deep faith can give away to genuine Worship. I know we just sang this, but I want to read the six verses of Psalm 13. It says this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest the enemy say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Psalm 13 is only six verses long. I think that speaks a little bit in and of itself. When our level of pain and hurt is really high, we often struggle to even find the words adequate to speak into it, to speak out of it, to speak in the midst of it, to talk about it in any way, shape, or form. If you think back to the time when you experienced hurt and pain and difficulty of this level, you know what I'm talking about. Someone asks you, hey, how are things going? And before you're even able to get words out, the tears kind of start to bubble up. Your heart just absolutely sinks. And maybe you just get a, a nod of the head one direction or the other. More often than not, when we get into these situations, we kind of just lie. Hey, how are things going? It's, all, it's fine. I'm doing well. Even though your heart is screaming something else inside you. Remember that a real person wrote these words in response to real life feelings about their real life. The text doesn't give us any sort of clue as to what period of David's life that he's writing in the midst of, but there are some theories. Some think that David is right at the peak of being chased by Saul, who wants to kill him. Others think that David faced some sort of illness at some point in his life, and he wrote in response to that. And then there are some who think that shortly after uh, the incident with David and Bathsheba when Absalom, David's son, leads a revolt to overthrow him as king, that David writes Psalm 13 in the midst of that. 
The text doesn't give us the direct clue there. But the bottom line is this. Something has David in the midst of great despair, which is a condition we can all identify with. And because of that, I think it's safe and accurate to say that these verses can apply to anything in our life that throws us into that sort of season. Whether it be something entirely internal, a set of circumstances beyond your control, whether it be an illness or a disease, anything in life that puts you in great despair, this psalm gives us a model of what it looks like to interact with the Lord in the midst of that. Throughout the psalms, David consistently has two things in view, an enemy and the Lord. And it's actually against the backdrop of David's very clear view of his enemy that you see the greatness of who God is and and to his full extent. And quite often the same is true in our lives. If you think back on something that caused you great, great grief, when you get on the backside of it, often when reflecting on that darkness and that difficulty and that challenge, you see the glory and goodness and faithfulness and beauty of the Lord clearer than you ever have before. It's like great darkness has settled in on you and there's one point of light over there. And that point of light, you see clearly you cannot miss it. That's often the way it is when we get into times of deep pain in life, that the the light and love and goodness of the Lord is as visible as it ever is, but we've got to look for it. I'm gonna break this psalm into three pieces for us, three two-verse chunks. The first piece are verses one and two, and it's marked by four times where David says, how long? How long, Lord, will you forget me? How long will you hide your face? From me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart? How long, Lord, shall my enemy be exalted over me? If you've existed in the realm of the church very long, you probably feel a certain degree of pressure that when things go horribly wrong in your life, you're not allowed to ask questions. You just take it on the chin and try to move forward. That's actually nowhere in the Bible. In fact, you name a significant biblical character and you will see not only their pain and suffering at some point in their life, you'll also see them turn to the Lord and ask him, hey, what the heck? Why is this happening? What is going on? When our suffering is great, questioning the Lord is perfectly fine but it cannot be the end of our interaction with him. You see Old Testament figures questioning God almost at every turn. It actually marks most Old Testament figures' relationship with the Lord. Abraham questions God. Moses questions God. David questions God. Job questions God for chapters on end. It actually marks, it signifies their relationship with the Lord. Jesus on the cross in the midst of his greatest pain and suffering questions God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The same is true in any of your earthly relationships. When someone I don't know does something that I don't understand, I don't worry about it. I just move on. They just do their thing and it's totally fine. When someone that I'm close to does something that I don't understand, I ask a question. 
When someone that I'm close to does something unintentionally or intentionally that hurts me, I ask them about it. Hey, what's going on here? Why did, can you help me understand why this happened? It signifies our relationship. But I don't just ask the question and then move on. I don't just ask the question and then run away. It can't be the end of our interacting with the Lord. David's questioning, how long, Lord, will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? How long do I just need to come up with my own self-comfort methods in my own heart? How long is my enemy going to be exalted over me? And then he moves into a second place. He begins to offer a prayer, if you will. Our questioning with the Lord should move us into deeper relationship with the Lord. Look at a couple of the things David says in verses three and four. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. He carries this image of Moses after having interacted with the Lord on the mountain, coming down, and the text says that his face is radiant. It's lit up. He's, he's been with the Lord. David says, in the midst of my grief and in the midst of my pain, Lord, when you feel distant and far away from me, light up my eyes. Let me just be in your presence. I want to see you, God. That an interaction in the presence of the Lord would bring light to David's life. And then he says, verse 4, Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken shows a desire for, in David's life to see the Lord glorified. God, I don't want my enemy to be able to rejoice in its victory over me. Lord, I want to be able to rejoice in your victory over my enemy, whether that be an illness, whether that be some sort of relational difficulty, whether that be some sort of life circumstance that has thrown off everything that you thought was regular and normal and good in your life. And David says, Lord, don't let that thing get the best of me. I want you to get the best of that thing. I want you to receive glory, not my enemy. These are statements that move far beyond the realm of questioning. If questioning is an acceptable first place to begin in your relationship with the Lord in the midst of your despair, these kinds of prayers are the second stop that say, Lord, I want a deeper relationship in the midst of this suffering with you. I want to see you in the midst of it. Light up my eyes. I want to see you get glory in your working in the midst of my suffering. God, would you have victory here? There's like a begging and a longing on David's part. It's not only true that suffering and grief and hurt on the backside can allow us to look backward and say, look at these things, they're so true. But in the midst of them, that can happen. But it requires action on our part. It requires giving full vent to our emotion and asking the Lord, where are you? What is going on? Why is this happening? And then moving to this place where we pray these kinds of prayers that say, Lord, deepen my relationship with you in the midst of this. I don't want to wait until it's over. David, or John Piper says, don't waste your suffering. Don't waste your grief by just waiting for it to be over and then saying, okay, Lord, now I'm ready to interact with you. Now I'm ready to learn something. Now I'm ready to see you glorified. He says, in the midst of it, you look to the Lord and you say, give my eyes light. Allow me to feel your presence, God. Oftentimes, uh, I, I end up writing a card or 
giving a quick phone call to someone in our congregation here who has experienced something in their life that's likely causing them great pain. And I, I always use the same phrase. I say that I'm praying for you that you would recognize the presence and goodness of the Lord in the midst of your pain. Oftentimes, the reason God feels distant in the midst of our suffering has nothing to do with God having left. It's got everything to do with us keeping him at arm's distance. Lord, my life hurts right now, and I think it's your fault, and I'm going to keep you over here. And when the suffering is gone, when the hurting is gone, then I'll allow you back in to my presence. And then we blame God as if he abandoned us in the midst of our hurt. Jesus on the cross moves in this same direction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, he says. And then right as he dies, you remember what he says? Into your hands I commit my spirit. In the midst of my pain and in the midst of my suffering, Lord, into your hands I am moving toward you. There's this deep relationship, God. You're going to receive glory in the midst of this. I'm going to be in your presence. There's a deepening of relationship there. The last two verses are this, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. There's this change in David. And it's a change that shows us this. We have to allow our despair to breed faith within us that gives way to worship. That sounds incredibly Christian and like something a pastor would stand up in front of you and say. And I recognize that. But what does it look like? In these two verses, there are three things here that are instructive. The first is that we can trust. I can trust. Raise your hand if your Bible says uh, at the beginning of verse 5, I, some form of I have trusted, a past tense kind of thing. Raise your hand if your Bible gives some sort of future tense. I will trust. Does anybody go that direction? The verse can be translated actually either way. It's a verb construction that we don't uh, have in English. What is essentially being said is that I have trusted in the past, and because of that, I will trust in the future. Lord, I trusted you on items in the past in my life, and that turned out to be a good decision, so I will continue to trust going forward. This is why we started where we did in Psalms last week with Psalm 145. Because in the midst of our pain, we have to remind ourselves of the unchanging nature of God's love for us. You could trust it in the past. You could trust that God was great enough, that Jesus was real enough to stake your eternal hope on him, which means that in the midst of temporal suffering, you can do the same thing. You can trust. I can trust. David's given full vent to his emotions. He's asked these questions. He's pushed beyond those questions and sought relationship in the midst of his pain. And now he says, I know that I can trust you, Lord. I know that you are good. More often than not, we don't allow ourselves to even start the process. I can't question the Lord in the midst of this. I can't seek deep relationship with him in the midst of this. Because we never draw near to him we never give him the chance to prove himself to us. We never give him the chance to show and display his love and unchanging nature. But David doesn't stop there. Look at the second half of verse 5. My heart shall rejoice. So not only can you trust, not only can we trust, we can rejoice. 
in the midst of our suffering. This is the place where if you've been around church long enough, you feel like you just have to jump. I'm gonna skip everything before this. I'm gonna skip actually giving vent to my emotions. I'm gonna skip offering any sort of opportunity to grow and deepen in my relationship with the Lord. I'm gonna skip the fact that I can trust him and I'm just going to pretend to rejoice. Oftentimes, in the midst of our suffering, that's where we think we just have to go. Oftentimes, unintentionally, when we interact with someone who is suffering, we jump all of that other stuff and and we make people feel like they just have to rejoice. We go way too fast to God has a purpose for this. Is that absolutely true? Yes. Do we know that to be true as Christians? Yes. When you're on the other side of the suffering, is that what you want to hear right away? No. Not one bit. Because that forces me to just skip to the fact that I can rejoice. It forces me to glaze over any sort of process with my own emotions, with my own feelings, and my own relationship with the Lord. And it forces me to just pretend that I'm happy in the midst of it. It's actually incredibly insensitive. It sounds like a wonderful Christian thing to say. And it is. And at a certain point, there's a chance to talk about and reflect on and and have a conversation about what the Lord is doing. But oftentimes, when someone is experiencing grief and pain, we need to let them drive that conversation from in the midst of it instead of trying to drive it from outside. We've got to let someone in the midst of their grief and suffering drive the conversation about what the Lord is doing in their life instead of forcing upon them that God's got a greater purpose for this. We know that's true. Unfortunately, we skip some of the steps there. David makes this statement about rejoicing in his salvation, but my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Last week we talked about how we read the Old Testament with the New Testament bias. So we see the word salvation and we think about the sin-conquering, soul-saving work of Jesus on the cross when we see the word salvation. That's absolutely what it means for us. For an author in the Old Testament, it meant something a little bit different. When they spoke of salvation, they were speaking about Literal well-being, my in-the-moment well-being. My heart rejoices in the fact, Lord, that you are going to care for my well-being right now. I've seen you do it in the past, so I can trust you to do it again in the future. And because I can trust you to do it in the future, I can rejoice. That's what David is saying. On the backside of Jesus on the cross... We know that God absolutely cares for us in the midst of our suffering, that he is going to work in some form or fashion over some period of time. It might not be quick. It might take a little while in order to help us move into a place of well-being. But we can also rejoice in the fact that our light and momentary struggles are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. That Jesus has gone to the cross on our behalf, and if we've placed our faith in him, then we're going to spend eternity in a place where grief and suffering are no longer a reality. And our hearts can rejoice in that, even in the midst of the greatest of earthly, temporary pain. The last is this. I can worship. That's verse 6. I will sing to the Lord, for he has dealt bountifully with me. One tendency we have in our own lives or in our interactions with someone who is experiencing a very rough time is to think that if your faith were just greater, if my faith were just greater, this wouldn't be affecting me so much. If I just had more faith, this would be better. That puts the emphasis in the wrong spot. 
as if the strength of your faith could somehow make your circumstances better. The reality is that the strength of your Savior is what will sustain you in the midst of your circumstances. That what is powerful in Christianity is not the faith of an individual, but the one that you place your faith in. What's powerful as a follower of Jesus is not your ability to have some measure of faith before the Lord, but his, his ability to provide at every turn. This is how we're able to worship in the midst of our deepest despair. In the middle of even our, our deepest grief and hardship, what leads us to worship is not the strength of our faith, but the unfailing greatness of our Savior. There's a progression there in those six verses from questioning and giving vent to his hurt to praying for a deepening relationship to knowing that he can trust, knowing that we can rejoice, actually moving to a place where before the pain is gone, we're able to worship. I want to spend our last few minutes here giving a couple of general thoughts about grief and suffering. You might be in the midst of this type of life season right now, and if that's the case, I think there are three kind of myths that we tell ourselves all the time that we've got to get some freedom from in order to be able to process well. The first is that we often fall into a trap of believing that God is punishing us for our sin or for our unrighteousness. This type of thinking believes that we're the complete cause for the difficulty that we're facing. And while there are certainly times in our lives where we do things that create strife and trouble within us, the reality is that all people, without regard for their righteousness or Christ-like behavior, are going to suffer. The truth is that even the most holy of Christians is going to endure times of suffering and grief. In fact, I would go so far as to say that you actually deepen or further your inner turmoil when you allow yourself to believe that you are the sole cause for what's going on in your life, for the hurt that has come into your life. The reason being is that we stop looking. We stop looking to the Lord at that point. We just play a blame game within ourselves, and we add heaps of shame on top of our already ever-present grief. The second is this, that God doesn't care, doesn't see, or doesn't exist. This is how we end up convinced that God has left us alone in the midst of our suffering and will we'll return whenever he deems appropriate. What this does is it ends up creating bitterness in our hearts toward God. The reality is that God always cares, always sees, and is always present. That's the biblical truth about who God is. The third myth is this, I need to handle this on my own. We start to think that we are a burden to the people around us, that they don't want to hear us, that they don't want to walk alongside us in the midst of our troubles. We think that the better answer is to hide within ourselves. The reality is that the community of Christ, the church, actually exists in part to help bear one another's burdens. Let me give you one more thought here. Oftentimes, your painful experiences are redeemed by the Lord, not unfortunately, in your own life, but thankfully, in the life of someone else. They see you walking through what you're going through, and they've got hope for when they might experience a time like that. They see what you're going through and how you come through it, and then when they hit it in their own life, they've been given a model of what it looks like to pursue a deep relationship with the Lord in the midst of their grief. There are a couple of ways that you can regain the presence of the Lord, the feeling of the presence of the Lord, in your life when you're in the midst of grief. The first is just run toward that relationship with him. 
Don't push the Lord off to arm's distance. Vocalize your questions and emotions to him. Talk openly with him about your feelings of abandonment. Press into prayer in relationship with him. Let me give you a practical piece here. This is where journaling is great. Maybe you're not a journaler. Maybe you're more of someone who would rather go on a walk with your dog in a place where no one's going to see you and just verbalize it out loud. You don't want the neighbors to think you've lost it. Maybe you're someone, this was me in college, who would rather just get in their car and go drive somewhere and just sit and have a moment with the Lord where I actually verbalize out loud what it is I'm feeling inside. Getting those things out can be incredibly, incredibly helpful, but you've got to run toward that relationship. The second is this, move beyond yourself. Get out of your own head. Get out of your own self-focus. Seek to serve someone or care for someone else, even in the midst of your own pain. When you do that, you begin to let other people break in to the midst of your circumstances. And the last one is this. Immerse yourself in the body of Christ. Worship team, you can come on up. One of the greatest beauties of the church or a small group is that we get to catch a, a glimpse of who God is by just being around other people who love him. If nothing else, we hear a testimony to his faithfulness. We hear a testimony to the gospel. When it's hard to remind yourself of those truths, being in a community of fellow believers allows them to be vocalized around you and you hear them. Gerald Wilson puts it this way, when I sit or stand shoulder to shoulder with my fellow Christians in worship, I can hear songs of praise to God even when my heart can't sing them itself. In the midst of our grief, in the midst of our pain, the, the last thing we want to do is isolate ourselves. We need to immerse ourselves in the body of Christ even when we don't feel like it. When God feels distant, deep despair can fuel deep faith. And deep faith can give way to genuine worship. We're going to spend some time singing together here, responding to the Lord together as a congregation. There are going to be people up here on both sides of the stage who would love to pray with you. There's a little card in your bulletin that lists a few more psalms on this topic a lot of the same themes come up in those psalms if you want to dive into those over the next couple of days. Let's stand and sing. If you would like to pray with someone because you're in a period of grief right now, we would love to be able to pray with you as we worship together here at the end of our service.